Welcome to the Embody Podcast, where you'll find powerful resources and perspectives for cultivating and experiencing complete human flourishing. This podcast features renowned practitioners in the fields of movement and physical culture, mindfulness, philosophy and spirituality, embodiment, and all things human flourishing. I'm your host, Patrick Keating. Thanks for listening. Greetings and welcome to episode 15 of the Embody podcast. Uh, Today I'm joined by Oliver Crossley, who is the yogic physio on Instagram. So Oliver is a physiotherapist, yoga and movement teacher that aims to get people empowered and self-reliant to get out of pain and into new movement skills and physical resilience. His work blends evidence-based musculoskeletal rehabilitation with movement and yoga practice to provide holistic musculoskeletal therapy for his clients. He He also works as an educator, teaching anatomy, physiology, movement, and pain science to yoga practitioners, movers, and trainers. He's been a physio for two years, Ashtanga yoga practitioner for nine years, and a teacher for five a movement practitioner for just over four years, delving into gymnastics, strength training, bodyweight calisthenics, contemporary dance, and hand balancing. He also has a dedicated Zen practice, uh, and he moved to the Gold Coast to study with his teacher, Mark Tongi. The main things that drive his practice are Zen and Zen practice, exploring Ashtanga yoga and movement practice, and developing self-understanding of body and mind through a skeptical skeptical scientific lens. He is always asking himself, how might I be wrong? So we had an awesome conversation. This one was actually recorded a long time ago and I actually completely forgot to release it. Um, But this is a banger. We get really into some good stuff about the spine as well. Um, But yeah, awesome, uh, awesome conversation with Oliver. Enjoy. So we have Oliver Crossley here on the podcast today. Oliver, thanks so much for coming on, man. Thanks for the invitation, man. Pleasure. So, mate, give us a little intro as to what you're currently uh, doing at the moment with your practice and your teaching and work. Thanks, man. Yeah, sure. So I work primarily as a physiotherapist with a bit of a focus on uh, just because of my background in yoga, uh, with a bit of a focus on more yoga and movement-based treatment. Uh, so I work in the Gold Coast at PhysioFlex in Southport in Australia, uh, and I also offer online consultations. And um, the focus is on on providing more active, uh, which ends up being, what um, I'm sure we can talk about later on, what the science says is the best way to help people get out of pain and injury anyway, but more active um, movement-based solutions rather than spending heaps of time on a massage bed or getting you know, needles or different, you know, some, some people still use ultrasound and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, yeah, trying to empower clients much like, you know, yourself and many other movement coaches do to, to um, give them the tools to get them out of pain. And then outside of that, I educate uh, yoga teachers and practitioners about um, movement rehab science, pain science, and, and just try and give them more tools and more knowledge to be um, better practitioners and teachers. Fresh, dude. Sounds awesome, man. Um, I'm keen <laughs> to dig into some some things that we chatted about in our emails back and forth and some of the misconceptions about best practice from the, mm. um, and like, you know, uh, you know, the kind of uh, pseudoscientific or I guess you call it quackery kind of things that might come out of the yoga 
movement musculoskeletal musculoskeletal world. So do you want to talk a bit to that man? Um, if you can. Yeah, for sure. So the uh, there's a bit of a history with musculoskeletal rehab and, and care. Um, obviously, there's three main professions that everyone knows pretty well, depending on where you are in the world. We've got physios, osteopaths, sorry, and then uh, chiropractors. So we each have a different history, um, which tends to inform where we go. So my profession, physios, arose out of nurses primarily, um, particularly, yeah, really prominent women in the early 20th century where they wanted to they saw people coming back from, you know, World War One and things like that and needing physical help, primarily massage, really. They were like massage in, in hospitals really tended to help people. So it started off as like a massage association. And anyway, like long without going on a massive history, you can see from that basis where we start with massage and manual therapy that that ends up being the cornerstone focus of the profession. However, since... Um, uh, probably the last 20 years there's been a push to do more evidence-based practice as there has been across the wider biomedical sphere. You know, do, does what you do work? Do you have scientific evidence to support this? And so there's been a big push, particularly in the physiotherapy world, to do, you know, decent trials, decent, um, you know, scientific trials into checking all the stuff that we use and going what, what actually works, what actually helps people. And we've since realized through a 25 to 30 year process that's still evolving uh, and we're getting better at actually doing decent science. Um, but there's been this evolution to see that maybe having this overly structural biomedical passive approach, uh, you know, where the person doesn't do much and we do stuff to them like a mechanic to a car doesn't work as well as the more active interactive coaching based tools like um, education like uh, exercise therapy of any kind and um, progressive you know capacity building work and so yeah from there I've, I've like got a real passion f with my work to to bring more of the stuff that works a because lots of people are in lots of we've got a chronic pain epidemic you know in the states there's an opioid epidemic because of this musculoskeletal pain is like the second biggest cause of disability on earth it's a big problem and so with some simple shifts paradigm shifts in the profession there can be better therapists to then you know help people because this stuff doesn't take you know three sessions a week for 12 weeks as the car i might say it's um I, I saw a lady today for the second time and i'll probably see her once more for a hamstring injury and um she's independent doing exercises so a bit of a long rant but basically it's just going what works what doesn't let's do more of what works and luckily that tends to be the cheaper nicer more ethical option uh, and so, like, give us some examples of some things that we've uh, moved away from in terms of specifics and some things that we've yeah, moved sure. more towards. So things like um, hyper-focusing on muscles, uh, like the transverse abdominis, let's say, for back pain um, and, and trying to blame everything on that or, or electrotherapy like ultrasound or laser or shockwave. There's still some evidence for shockwave with some things, but it's definitely an adjunct treatment. But ultrasound is we found to be completely useless. Uh, Hyper-focusing on posture, and even I got asked a question on Instagram this morning, like ergonomic or office advice, you know, lifting things this way versus that. All of this stuff just doesn't work as well as we thought because there's these broader principles that luckily people in the movement world are really catching on to and they're really ahead of the curve where it's just about physical preparedness. 
and capacity and um, and as well as seeing the person from a holistic point of view. So what does work is going, okay, well, pain is perhaps more to do with um, the bigger context uh, around the person's life. They might be really stressed. They might be not sleeping well, not eating well. And then all of a sudden they go to the gym to try and just get some exercise in and their back and legs aren't really ready for a heavy deadlift, but they do it anyway. And then all of a sudden it goes pop. It's not the deadlift's fault. It's the bigger context. And so the therapist has to see that, should see that, and guide the person to see that as well. Interesting. So I'd like to dig into a bit of the lower back pain stuff. You know, mm. I, I've, uh, I've worked at places where, you know, they hit hard on the TA activation <laughs> and they've got, you know, se- oh, not seven-year-old, but what would you say, like 12-year-old kids feeling their sides, trying to activate their TA. And it's really hard because like even just trying to explain what a TA is to like even as someone that's been training and is educated and has an idea of anatomy is wildly hard. And, and then trying to like gain some kind of conceptual understanding of how to contract it and what it's supposed to do. Like, um, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit complex, you know, like what kind of things, what, you know, why doesn't that work so well? And what kind of things do you think we should be thinking more about when we're thinking of one of the most common things you hear about lower back pain? Yeah, so sure. So we're still learning a lot about low back pain um, and a lot of the ideas that we did think uh, are completely just not as good. So you mentioned that our focus on the transverse abdominis, which came out of some research just in Brisbane, actually, local to both of us, by actually a brilliant researcher called Paul Hodges, um, who's since, you know, seen the bigger picture. But to give people a bit of a history just so they understand it, they found that people with chronic low back pain, their transverse abdominis sort of switched on, if you will, not the muscles, they're always kind of on. There's no, there's, there's not really a binary on off switch, but they switched on, they activated, they, they um, fired up slower um, by, by like, you know, a chunk of a sec- second, minute time spans um, than people who didn't have chronic low back pain. So they made this presumption or the, the industry just jumped on it and went, oh, it must be this that then causes an instability because the spine is somehow then unstable and vulnerable, which is another big myth. And so this idea that the spine's vulnerable, it's, um, it's unstable, and this muscle is needed to contract the deepest muscle, the transverse abdominis, which I always explain to clients is kind of like the belt that you see heavy weightlifters use, but you've got your own, and it helps um, form a nice pressure capsule around the spine. Um, now that muscle works pretty much for everyone, but it, it works in unison. You know, we want like to train movements, not muscles. And so what we've figured out is that, like you said, it's too complex trying to get someone to feel a muscle. I did it all through uni. I did it to myself. I'll still try and practice now. And my gosh, like I, I really, I, yeah. <laughs> I just don't think it's possible. I've tried and, and sat and tried to entertain the idea and I, and I just, I can't. And even with all my years of study and focus and, and, and supposed expertise, I, I just feel like you can't isolate a certain muscle. So what it's really about is going, okay, that hypothesis didn't work because uh, chronic low back pain rates have continued to increase and, and that very exercise what we call motor control exercises, which kind of encompasses the transverse abdominus focus, has been shown to be no better than anything else, be it walking, Pilates, yoga, weightlifting, anything. Um, and so we went, hmm, okay. This sort of happened at the same time that really good pain research was starting to come out um, from some guys down in Adelaide and around the world to say, oh, okay, maybe 
there's more contextual effects and central nervous system stuff happening where the person's perception comes in. So let's say um, uh, this is a long one and road, so if I'm like tangenting or, or missing something, just bring me back. But uh, the the focus then became, right, well, how did this particular person feel pain and, and what came on? So if we're talking about, let's say, the deadlift again or the kid um, who, who hurt their back doing something, you have to sort of do two things mainly, I think, at the moment in my professional life. Look at that context and figure out how to de-threaten that again and make the person realise that the context wasn't the problem, it was just the you know lots of factors together. Uh, and then it's about, secondly, physically preparing from that, them for that again. So kind of, A, reducing the fear, getting them familiar with the context and making it less threatening, and B, getting the body just strong really again and prepared. Um, strong is like a broad perspective, not just, you know, classic strength, but just movement preparedness, be it like joint awareness, uh, range of motion, etc. And so... You know, what's your experience with, and what's your opinion on how the hips and the like? Um, I guess you could call it upstream from the ground, but downstream from the nervous system. Uh, what? What's? How do the hips interact with? You know, causing and interacting with lower back pain, and what about uh, some more like um, Up, upstream stuff, upwards things as well, <laughs> like yeah, like neck, shoulders, etc. Mm. So there is still biomechanical realities to our work and it's important to recognise that, but it's but it's, it's important to see again the big picture and not get too focused. So with the hips and the lower back, they're, you know, very closely related structures. If I use this metaphor that um, I'm welcome for any senior physios to call me out on it, but I feel like it hasn't been false yet. But there's this idea that we've got a bunch of people like a work team, a council work team, right, doing a job on the side of the road or trying to do a deadlift. And usually one bloke is doing all the work and the other bloke is standing around having smoke and, and doing nothing. Now, you could say that with like the low back and then the hips are tight and they're not doing much and the low back's doing all the work. So the low back gets tired, it gets sore faster. The bloke on the side of the road, he gets tired faster and grumpy faster. Whereas if everyone in the team, if every part of the body did its job and did it, was prepared for the job, you know, had the range, had the strength, then the strain would be distributed well and everyone would be able to work further, longer, better. Um, so with the hips, you know, if the hips are stiff and they can't flex very well, then the pelvis um, tends to then tilt uh, more posteriorly and it brings perhaps a more of a flexion strain onto the lower lumbar vertebrae joints. And so then, you know, if that's repeated over time, that can be a potential source of tissue irritation, which then potentially leads to pain. This is all potential, potential, potential. It's not very linear because, um, you know, I've seen guys do really heavy Jefferson curls and they're fine, but it, all, it comes back to that physical preparedness. And so if, if we look up the body as well, like saying the thoracic spine has limited range, but if it's a bit stiff, then, you know, there can be some forces perhaps translated to the lumbar spine more so if, um, if the thoracic spine wasn't, you know, more mobile or something like that, or the muscles around that area weren't more strong. And, um, you know, I hear also about... Uh, 
people having disc bulges and some of them are like heaps of people have disc bulges and some people have pain associated with them. Some people don't. Sometimes it provides an issue. Sometimes it doesn't. And it also kind of relates to, I think and touches into the, there seems to be a kind of like anti-spinal flexion like <laughs> thing with, with some physios. And it's like, if you do sit ups or any kind of spinal flexion work in a repeated fashion, um, and the amount of spinal flexion that yogis go through is like unhealthy and like, um, and then how does that relate to, you know, like that kind of disc bulge, like landscape, um, and also just the anti, the anti flexion vibes that some people have going on. Yeah, for sure. So the, the, we can blame a couple of biomechanists about, um, for this, particularly Stuart McGill. Um, he's, he's a very smart man, but, um, he, ha- he does have a solid uh, case of hubris, unfortunately, but he, he looked at some spine cadaver models and they did repeated strains. So basically they locked up this, you know, little lumbar spine that had been taken out of a cadaver and put it through, you know, repeated flexion in an isolated biomechanical model. And they saw that the disc degraded and it, you know, slowly sort of broke down. Now we presume then that, oh gosh, we have to really avoid this stuff so that we don't do this to ourselves. But the first logical fallacy there is that the cadaveric model is the same as the, you know, in vitro model. Uh, whereas the human, you know, we're adaptive, we're alive, our structures, uh, I often say to people, and this is not, none of these are my own thoughts, I've just learnt these and I spread them <laughs> for the better good, but this idea that we're not a machine, we don't break down over time, we're m- much more like a garden, we adapt to the environment we're in, we grow with the winds of time, like David Butler says, and we're, we've got this much higher range of capacity than we think, and so this fear of flexion comes from that idea that oh, we have to avoid at all costs any chance of increasing our risk of um, degeneration. However, we've seen, thanks to research from people like Wally Brinkaji, that uh, many of us, like you and I are probably in our late 20s, mid to late 20s, 30% of us people in our age range have uh, disc degeneration, disc bulges, perhaps not full herniations or sequestrations, but, uh, and these are people who don't have pain. And that rate goes up as you get older. So there's this idea that, okay, there's lots of so-called tissue pathology happening, but we don't have pain. And, and so some people like, let's see, Greg Lehman's done a really good blog on this that um, I'd be happy to share. Uh, we can perhaps get that in the show notes and as well as barbell medicine. And they talk about really that, you know, with a lot of spinal flexion, it's unavoidable. This idea of a neutral spine is... Um, is just perpetuating fear and perpetuating this idea of the nocebo, the the um, negative perception of your frailty, despite the fact you know, it's induced. Much like placebo, you get a positive effect from something that, that's nothing. You get a negative effect from a nocebo, from something that's nothing. So saying that you're vulnerable, saying that you're, you can't flex your spine induces fear, which then increases the threat to the organism that's perceived. And we know that pain is more related to perceived threat than just to tissue irritation or nociception because it's a bigger picture you know sometimes we don't need to feel pain we've got to keep going um and so with the spinal flexion it's really unavoidable and taking into the fact that we're more adaptable there's this movement optimism uh, rather than the kinesio pathological model this idea that you move wrong therefore you have pain I like to take a more movement optimistic approach and saying that, you know, people are adaptable. All we have to do is dose it right. Sure, you might hurt in spinal flexion, but if we back off or slowly um, expose and slowly increase that load, you know, 
I used to hurt flexing my back, but I can do 30 kilo Jefferson curls now. And I've seen a friend who's this, you know, very thin Brazilian man, just local to me, do 70 kilo body weight ones. So the body's really adaptable. Um, unfortunately, it's just because we, again, focused on something really small in the literature and went oh, and extrapolated too quick. So I want to, like, this is an awesome line of inquiry and I just want to keep on exploring and fleshing it out. Um, uh, like, so when I was at uni, study exercise and sports science, you kind of uh, live within a re- reductionistic realm and you're like, you know, split everything up. And I actually think there's like on a side note, <laughs> I will get to the question, but it's actually, I actually had to get over the reductionistic models that I developed of my body and, and the understanding of how it moved, thinking about it bottom up. It's like, oh, well, these are all the muscles. This is where they start. This is where they finish. This is their penation angles and fiber direction. And therefore they create these movements and therefore the body can do this bottom up based on our like chopping up of this ridiculously complex organism. <laughs> and yep. and actually I had, to, I had to do a lot of unlearning of those methods. They still come in handy for sure, but a lot mm-hmm. of unlearning and trying to think about things in a different way. And it always strikes me that after uni, I've come across like systems theory and systems thinking so much. And I've been like, this is what I wanted to learn in uni. Why? I don't know about physio, but like, <laughs> how are we working with a complex, like, you know, probably the most complex system that we know, how do we not learn any of the basics of systems theory, but live solely in that realm of reductionism when we think about the body? Oh my God. That's a really good point, man. Um, yeah, I dynamic systems theory and systems theory, I wish I came across it. I still don't have a very solid understanding, but I've seen enough applications of it to get a decent idea. And yep, exactly. There's this Descartian approach of, of classic, you know, Western scientific reductionism that is, you know, as you said, it's helpful. We've, it's, it's too hard to eat the elephant all at once, so we do need to cut it up and break it down. But then once we digest it, we need to put it all back together. Um, and this is where you know, these ideas and theories perhaps should be at least put in at the end or perhaps framed the the learning journey from the very beginning, that we have a bigger picture of how this all works. You know, there's an interdependence, there's a a resilience and adaptive capacity um, and that one thing doesn't affect the other, that you've got these mutually interacting systems, uh, you know, that your immune system and your nervous system are so closely interlinked in their function that you almost need to be a neuroimmunologist rather than just a neurologist, um, as, you know, Professor Lorimer Mosley often says. So, yeah, I 100% agree. And my education is the same. And physio did the exact same thing, and it was only out of natural curiosity and some helpful mentors and the profession was moving, some of the profession moving in a decent direction that I came across those ideas as well. And, you know, I assume that your practice and your yoga practice um, and movement practice in general, building capacity in different ways as well has informed that because so many, you know, it's funny how medicine is so systematized these days that you're actually so far from, being healthy yourself in a way, you know what I mean? You just become like a health dealer and then that, that gets so systematized. You get so far away from the thing you're actually dealing and you don't get any of it yourself. And it's crazy that sometimes you'll go, you'll see like nutritionists eating just like lollies or, or like just like smacking, you know, random foods that all, or like, you know, physios that are creaking around with a sore back or something. And it's crazy that there's not a, um, 
there's not a, a practice like realm to the theory realm as well. And we just prioritize that intellectual understanding over the practical, you know? Yeah, it's a massive problem. A, a Buddhist teacher I really like, uh, Reggie Ray, often said Westerners are floating heads. We kind of forget that there's something below the neck. And um, that problem really perpetuates. I remember when my mum was in hospital uh, once that the, this dietitian walked in and the poor lady was obese. Um, and there's obviously lots of factors contributing to that, obviously not completely her fault, but she advised that my mum have a dark chocolate Mars bar because that was perhaps more healthy than the other Mars bar. And my mum wasn't interested in eating Mars bars in, in at all. <laughs> I just, and, you know, the, I've seen so many physios that don't walk the talk. And there's a big, you know, argument in our profession that whether that's important, but I tend towards you need to walk the talk because you need to know what that's like to live through the experience of training progressive overload, you know, what's a good muscle soreness, what's a bad one, um, because we're humans. And when I'm treating people, it's m mostly about that human-to-human -human connection. And if I can share some lived experience, there's definitely more trust and buy-in, as I'm sure you would have. Like if, if the physio that I go to see for, let's say, my injury doesn't know what it's like to do X, Y, Z or feel it, then you're not as likely to trust them. Yeah, of, of course, man. Um, and speaking about, you know, that kind of, that practiced, I've heard this uh, dichotomy drawn between evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence. And it seems that, you know, this, yeah, um, the space that I, you know, coach in, uh, like somewhat coach in, in the movement space is very much, I'd say, dominated by that side of the spectrum, the practice-based evidence and like, just like, don't worry about it. Like, you know, everything scientific is like realistically useless because like, uh, like physios don't deadlift or whatever, whatever the question mark, whatever the question may be. And there's definitely value in, in that, as you're saying, but yeah. what do you think that, you know, that kind of the yoga movement crowd can learn from and should learn more about in that, from the science and and from the the people like yourself who've who've gone through and, and got the formal education mm, that's a really good question yeah because you know if, the, if if everyone did everything by the book then there wouldn't be any fresh hypotheses to test there's always that point that we need to remember so we can't be zealots um and something i've been guilty of however um and that's where we get stuck with really kind of you know it's overly conservative um scientific data to work with so things that people can learn from science would probably be the complexity uh that i think that dynamic systems approach and the complexity of neurobiology and the complexity of pain uh and and definitely um something i've started to dabble in a little bit more lately evidence around diet and resistance training there's some really good academics in sort of this neurobiology of pain resistance training, hypertrophy world and nutrition that have debunked a lot of myths that I've had. So, you know, that there's a protein absorption window perhaps or that pain is directly related to an issue in the tissue or that, um, that resistance training that, you know, uh, I don't know what's a myth that I've, I've come across. One struggles to come to mind at the moment, but Brad Schoenfield's a really good researcher there that he's even got an instagram um, like most of these guys do nowadays or twitter that's how i keep up to date with it so if we listen to some of these academics i feel we can get a nice dose of humility and learning because they they spend a lot of time you know and the scientific process is not well understood by a lot of people and yeah it has its flaws but 
they have to go through a lot of rigor, a lot of crap, a lot of um, a lot of filtering of bullshit to give you the information that they end up getting. So it's it's worth listening to. Uh, we all know its flaws, but we really can step a little bit further forward and hopefully reduce this uh, well-known 17-year gap between when stuff is published and when stuff is understood by the general public or even practitioners. Um, I was talking to someone the other day and and someone else was actually overhearing me try and explain like the way in which like I approach flexibility kind of training and coaching. And, you know, granted, I haven't been in this game for long and I'm not that mobile as well compared to some people for (laughs) sure. But I was trying to explain that, you know, commonly people think about it as like a tissue problem and like there is a tissue component, but a lot of the thing is like reprogramming. It depends what what you want to say, like reprogramming your neuromuscular understanding of your ranges. Or you could say on another level, like the stories that you're, that you, that you tell like implicitly about your body that are embodied stories of like, well, we don't go there, can go there, never had any issues. So I'm like really floppy over there. Um, and someone kind of piped up in the background and was really kind of against that and really kind of challenged my ideas about it or just, just that. I was really interested because I was like, um, you know, why was there such resistance and why do you think sometimes there's so much resistance to that? Uh, Like I can only assume that it was like, oh, that's too woo woo. And like, you know, yeah, it's it's too woo woo. It's too out there. And like, it's not all just like hippie dude. Like you just stretch the hamstring kind of thing. The hamstrings tight, stretch the hamstring kind of vibe. And I was like, fair enough. Like, do you encounter that? And like, how do you, like, where do you think that kind of comes from? That's a really big, uh, this is probably my favorite topic, which is like knowledge transferal and um, the process of unlearning and learning that as a culture and as individuals we all have to do. So primarily, I think there's this obviously a natural tension between those who are more conservative versus progressive. That, that tend, I mean, we all tend to be that in various aspects of life, but some people don't like that progressive aspect that some parts of science do push forward. Um, but then primarily we just don't like um, the closer our beliefs are to our sense of self, the sort of the closer, the more peripheral our beliefs are to our sort of structured sense of self, sense of reality, the more easily they're changed without much resistance. The closer they are to our sense of self, work, identity i feel the more likely you're going to get a backlash um what sam harris and some other researchers i think daniel quinter uh called the backfire effect uh, they looked at this politically but um or cognitive dissonance this well-known process where you get resistance to, to newly acquired information that deeply conflicts with your current held beliefs understandings um so that right there is just like your, your primary berlin wall that you're coming up against and what we need to do is sort of, <laughs> this is where motivational interviewing and, uh, I don't know, just stages of change model can guide our discussions a bit and maybe help us frame it a bit differently. Um, but I think, yeah, it's about, for me, I'm just trying to take the, the classical scientific curiosity, which is how can I be proved wrong? Where is the existing research and understandings of this? Because, like, flexibility, if only mention that, like even listening to some researchers and i've found new papers new research like there is in every human field of human endeavor that just haven't even been read by most academics or 
you know, that if it's done before, you know, we have, we're not rewriting or reinventing the wheel. Most of this has been done, said, researched before. We just need to be humble enough to look out and read it. And so I've got much more of a, I try to maintain a humble lens of going, everything I know and think is, needs to be open to being changed because otherwise I'll end up doing something bad or, or not doing something as efficiently as I could. Yeah, cool, man. I really back that. Um, you know, one more thing while we're here, posture. You mentioned that mm. there's, you know, maybe an overemphasis on it or a misunderstanding. What do you mean by that? Sure. So I wrote a really nice blog on this that I think um, John, you and a friend of mine has posted on the website that I encourage people to go and read. But a short synopsis would be that it's another cultural idea that isn't, doesn't have very good backing in science because we've mainly out of military history and culture, particularly European military history in the 1600s, you needed to have a decent enough posture to hold certain weapons to be an efficient soldier on the battlefield. And then in a weird kind of way, these notions of ideal posture kind of came into in vogue fashion circles in the 18th century, 19th century, particularly thanks to an American woman whose name evades me, but is on the blog. She ended up, you know, teaching royalty in Europe, how to stand right, how to do all this stuff right. And whilst there are more optimal positions to, you know, perhaps take a deeper breath or, or to exert force for a certain position, Unfortunately, the idea and the, the correlation, supposed correlation between posture and any kind of musculoskeletal pain was too closely pushed together. And lots of research, be it the, the idea of text neck and holding a flexed neck position for hours on end, has been shown to have nothing to do with pain. Uh, no, certain postures with like sitting or slouching, Again, nothing to do with pain. Even quite the contrary, I've seen a, a paper that showed that slouching in the chair in a certain way can actually increase the water and hydration content in your lumbar discs. So, again, we, we, we had a nice hypothesis that seemed to make sense, you know, that makes sense, but often there's a complexity and a nuance that is always underlying that simple explanation that ends up showing us that mm, we jumped on the linear pathway again too fast tried to blame something for everything and turns out there's more to it almost nothing to the posture pain debate um Lars Avamari has written some good stuff on this as well on his website interesting man um so and kind of close to that uh in terms of core training another thing mm -hmm. that's uh you know I know that in the in the movement space it's not really thought of as core because like we're we're above the word core because that that's, <laughs> that's for job. yeah that's for I don't know that's for like PTs or something like that and we're like movement coaches or something like that like how do you think about core strength um we'll we'll touch on this and we'll touch on specifically spine and spine work uh, after I think but you know how do you think about core training and strength and do you think we need to do it what's your opinion on those things. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on what you're doing. Um, there's a lot of muscles around the abdomen um, that need to be strong, just like any other muscle that need to be capable, that need to be linked in. Usually it's through movement skill, depending on what you do, right? We have to be, we have to think like really good strength and conditioning coaches generally, I find, and just go, what's the sport? What are the prerequisites required? How can we improve the body's 
efficiency and capacity and then target that. So it depends on what you're doing. So for me, I like gymnastics-based drills where I'm like doing toes to bar and stuff. That's one of my favorites. But a, a model, um, a metaphor that I use from a mentor of mine, uh, Robin Kerr, who writes for the Physio Network, she's a really, really good kind of movement-based lateral thinking physio in Sunny Coast. She's so smart. Uh, she talks about it like the hub and spokes and pressure control. So we've got a thoracic cavity and abdominal cavity and our capacity to a uh, skill around controlling pressure, be it keeping a nice relaxed belly, Simon Borg Olivier style, yoga style, or having a nice solid brace when we do a heavy lift and everything in between, not just having those binary options. It's about having this ability to transfer force through the hub because our upper and lower limbs, arms and legs are our spokes and our belly, our core, our abdomen, whatever you want to call it, is our hub. And I've found that a really useful metaphor that still doesn't have many faults to it because it's it's where we translate force through. If you're a tennis player, you've got to plant one foot, swing the opposite arm and translate force through that area. And so you might want to be strong there. You might want to have some skill there. And that's where you can find some really interesting links that I find still need some research to confirm or disconfirm around breath and pressure control. Because my mentor, just on this, she makes a really nice point. And I, I encourage everyone to go watch like a Nadal Federer match on YouTube. Federer is a wind instrument player, to the best of my knowledge. And so he's got quite a lot of skill and focus on controlling his breathing because you have to when you play an instrument or you sing. And so his thoracic, intrathoracic and intra-abdominal pressure control is perhaps a little bit more, he's got a bit more acuity with that versus Nadal and other players. They all grunt, right? But Nadal makes this more, you know, perhaps less skillful, I don't know, maybe uh, more forceful grunt to exert a force with a swing, whereas Federer's got this, this grace to him uh, like, like a contemporary dancer would. And you can, you can see movement skill. I think even to the untrained eye, most of us can notice this, and it comes back to this intelligence around using the centre, the trunk, um, but it's so much more than, you know, sit-ups and, and side planks. It's, it's around breathing, pressure control, and the specific skills you need for your sport. And then do you teach and practice or um, r- really like different forms of more tr- like thought of spinal movement, like uh, maybe basic segmentation and awareness and, and flowing and stuff like that? Do you think that – do you ever teach that to your – clients in terms of a rehab kind of standpoint do you think that it has a, yeah. a place yeah exactly um i've got this running idea or hypothesis that you know your ability your awareness of a certain area improves your ability to control the load and forces through that area and therefore mitigate strain and potentially pain so if you can isolate feel and use your spine with way more intelligence and control through spinal waves um, through got all different types of articulations, uh, wonderful, awesome. I think that does have a massive impact. And I'll often cue and, tr- you know, get people doing cat-cow segmental waves or, or standing spinal waves against the wall like you guys do in the movement gym. It's brilliant stuff. And this is where, this is a great point where practice-based evidence, we can, we can look to the field, look to the innovators, look to the movers out there and go, does this have a reasonable you know, hypothesis behind it. Is it useful? Is there a risk of harm? Let's do it. And then, you know, hopefully someone has enough money and time to test it. Sorry, man, you've gone dead. Sorry, here I am. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't press unmute. 
Um, so, you know, in terms of uh, shifting onto your meditation practice and uh, experience, can you describe a little bit about Zen meditation to us? Or sure. Zen perspective? So I, I have a, like a real, I don't know why, a real affinity to like Buddhist practice and Buddhist ideas. Um, after high school, I spent some time in India um like in being exposed to tibetan buddhism and being around it doing a little volunteering job and then since then i've tried to pursue a reasonably regular meditation practice initially it was vipassana like the classic 10-day retreats that a lot of us know through the going to tradition that i found very helpful but then with some issues with that that i had certain dogmas i ended up just through luck really finding my way to my teacher here on the gold coast uh, who's an Ashtanga teacher of 30 years and a Zen monk, Zen teacher of a decade or more. And he, uh, yeah, I became a student. And so I've, in the last, he was it four years? Yeah, four years I've, I've had a really interesting journey and, and gone into learning and being a Zen student. And for me, what it's shown me is that I've gotten out of my head a bit and, and realised that a lot of Buddhist philosophy is actually kind of universal if you take some of the secular names away and, and frame it from a certain point of view. So Zen is really distinctly different to other traditions because it aims to just sort of cut the bullshit, cut the steps, the progressions, and just point straight to where we're trying to go, which is um, most Buddhism, there's this idea, Buddhist idea, the theories point to this idea that you know there's this ubiquitous suffering or, or discontent that we all hold as as humans that bothers us and drives us to do things that might not be as healthy and we need to solve this and there's potentially some paths to do this and and usually it's around looking at our life bringing some awareness to it solving this primary problem of ignorance and seeing that our sense of self perhaps is the original problem that we're too rigid with who we think we are you know, uh, and, and that leads us to get really grumpy when we get things that we don't want and want things that we can't get. And so if we can maybe look at ourselves and turn the light on inside, we can see what's actually happening, which is a lot more fluid. And so Zen sort of goes, just like many other schools, you're a lot more fluid than you think you are. Once you flow with that, you become more Economist to the ups and downs of life because you don't get things you want and you get things that you don't want a lot. Um, just you and I talking before the call. <laughs> We've had, had our issues today. And so it gives you this flexibility to be with things as they are because ultimately we can't escape from the present moment and time is perhaps the most scarce resource of all of our lives. And so why not taste and enjoy and get the flavour of every moment that we're alive because we don't know when it's going to end. And, and I feel that's quite a universal, fairly uncontroversial idea. And so what, it, what Zen really points to that makes it different is to, is to be with every moment as it is, to not fight with it, to go with it, to lean into it and get comfortable. It has a lot of links with stoicism, to get comfortable being uncomfortable, building that economist muscle. And so you can taste every moment and perhaps unify with it and go beyond your subject-object habitual awareness and, and and sink into a broader view uh, but i'm still learning so um that's very intellectual there's there's lots of practice and, and uh steps for me to go through <laughs> well no steps really um so 
you know, what's the difference between working with a meditation teacher as opposed to just doing it by yourself? <laughs> so that's actually another key part of Zen is that it's a, it emphasizes and, and puts the human to human, the teacher student relationship above all else. Because ultimately there's so many pitfalls. Like if the, if the key problem is our ignorance of ourself, then how many potholes, how many traps do we set for ourselves? How many blind spots do we all have? And so it takes another person, be it your psychologist, be it your partner, be it your best mate, um, be it your Zen teacher, to point out these blind spots and, and guide you through them in a compassionate way because we can't see everything. And, you know, we evolved to be in tribal groups, right? So to have someone there as a friend um, is really useful. And, yeah, I've, I've just I've taken a lot of value from having that, that person, A, motivate me, um, guide me and point out my blind spots because doing it on my own was very tumultuous. And eventually, as my teacher always says to me, you hit a roadblock. Even if you're the most motivated person out there using apps or doing your own personal practice, you'll get to a point where you get stuck on something and you, you often need a teacher to flip your perspective and go, have you looked at it from this direction? And then all of a sudden the obstacle falls apart. And so how did you go about, you know, finding your meditation teacher? And also, if you mind talking about this, absolutely fine. If not, like, what is your current, like, what's your kind of relationship? And, like, you know, do you meet up with them often? How often do you, like, chat, etc.? Yeah, of course. No, I'm happy to share it all because it's all really helpful because I feel like particularly guys our age, just guys in general, um, we don't share stuff with um a, a, an objective third person as much as we, we should um sometimes that just needs to be a therapist um i'm lucky that my teacher is sort of half that half my zen teacher because if you get a really strict zen teacher they'll probably they just want to hear about your method how your life's going how they can help you with your method that's it whereas i'm really lucky to have this like a close spiritual friend if you will um not to sound too woo woo but i came across him by sheer luck i was down visiting the Gold Coast um, because an ex-girlfriend's parents lived here. I knew this guy was a really good Ashtanga teacher. I was a devout, devout Ashtanga practitioner then, still kind of am. And I went, I've got to go see this guy. He's got a five-day intensive on at the moment, just yoga intensive. So I went. I got in on the second day, on the Tuesday. I was going to a Friday. And then I left. Uh, uh, as I left on the Friday, I, I knew he was a Zen monk. So I went, can I ask you some meditation questions? And he went, yeah, sure. Here's my email. Send me some stuff and I'll get back to you. And then it started. And he was very helpful over email. And then I, I just felt a pull to come back to the Gold Coast. And I kept seeing him. And then I eventually went, okay, can I ask? Like, I asked to be a student like a bit more formally. And since then, there's been this a real relationship develop um, where you learn to trust each other more. Um, you figure each other's personalities out more. And then I catch up with him usually weekly as much as I can in a class setting. So, you know, like a movement coach, I'll go and see him twice, three times a week, ideally in a, in a yoga class setting where I've got a chance to ask him a quick question or two. And then maybe once every, I don't know, maybe four or five times a year, I'll have a sit down with him for a longer period of time, one-to-one, and then and just divulge and ask for his help, um, which I'm looking forward to is actually happening soon. And then once a year, um, I go on retreat with him and the rest of the Sangha, the group, and we practice 
silent we do a silent retreat for a week and he's there for interviews and other teachers as well of the other monks and so what are some of the misconceptions that uh you had to restructure and um and the things that you had to unlearn and learn uh during your meditation journey a lot uh that that meditation is more about unlearning and being than it is about learning and doing that's a real action dichotomy that westerners i struggled with because and i still struggle with it because i sit down on my cushion and i'm deliberately doing something right but all i'm really deliberately doing thanks to his guidance is setting up a posture that's tall and comfortable setting up a position and a context that's quiet enough and undisturbed and then the rest is just letting be and 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 keeping some form of a an anchor through a method that he gives me that a teacher will give you to stay grounded in the moment so you can practice being one with what is uh and you still fall into habit traps of trying to do that but it ends up being like the buddha talks about it with this quote that we're really trying to ultimately there's no problem at all if we get really you know metaphysical from the ultimate perspective but if we really look at life if we kind of look at the more relative world we've got this kind of thorn stuck in us but we need to use another thorn to prick out that thorn um and so what's what's been unlearned is this 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 focus on technique a focus on doing and progression even this idea that there's a progression sometimes progression as in through different methods or progression as in to different stages and higher you know states of consciousness yeah. and stuff like that exactly like the states of consciousness ken wilbur is a really good writer on this and he's his uh, Mark doesn't get too much into the theory stuff naturally because it's another trap and he's trying to make it as easy as possible. But Ken Wilber uh, uh, talks about states and stages. So we can look at our states and we get very excited. Perhaps we think our meditation practice is working when we get into these higher states, perhaps more unified, um, steady, equanimous, joyful, whatever the adjective is. And so we think that that's what we're aiming for. But ultimately, the real Zen practice, as one of my other, you know, guiding teachers, the other Zen monks, um, he says, you know, in Zen practice, just like in life, there's peaks and there's valleys. And you need to be, you need to be friendly with them all. And the real juice I find is being friendly with the valleys, the, the mud, the, the mangroves, because what happens is is that when you come out of those states you're not aware of the stages that you're progressing through ultimately because you can't see yourself as well you know the teeth can't bite themselves if you will and alan watts quote like they you need to be able to be cool with the lower states because that's where zen practice really hits the road you know where you're having an argument with your partner where you're or where you're feeling really crappy one day and you might be pulled to perhaps certain vices that aren't helpful um, or, or distraction or whatever, or, or just being angry, like some negative emotional state. You, Because you're friendly with them, you then become less reactive to them. And so you can be with them and just be a nicer human because instead of being grumpy, you can just be steady and, 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 be, and just have less negative impacts really to the people and world around you. And when you talk about, uh, when we said progressions is in, you know, levels of consciousness and how Zen is removed from that kind of dogma, do you still 
would you still find it helpful to guide people through a meditation practice with methods that kind of evolve or change and are different for the person who's literally first time sitting to someone who's like maybe reached that stale point that you're talking about after like, you know, a couple of years of practice? Yeah. So I, I'm not a qualified Zen teacher. I'm still very much a student, but as, as far as my understanding guides me, yes. So even as a, you know, yoga teacher, as a more clinically, I'll definitely suit the method to the person's level and their distractibility and their buy-in. Some people are really bought in. They've, you know, they've suffered enough. They're sick of it. They want to get somewhere. Some people are just kind of wanting a bit of stress relief. And so you definitely adjust it to that. But in the Zen world, my teachers definitely adjusted my method according to where I'm at, you know, even if I'm not going to use these terms, but like progressed, regressed. Uh, And there's as much as there's no stages, there still are stages that they talk about in Zen practice. Like the 10 ox herding pictures are a really nice um, depiction of the journey, perhaps this, this idea of, you know, the, the hero's journey or in the ox pit herding pictures, you can look them up. There's 10 ox herding pictures in the Google. You'll see it. The person kind of goes to look for this bull that's left the, the village. He sees traces. He sees a glimpse of the bull around the tree. He finds it. Then he has to tame it. Then he has to kind of calm it down. Then he has to bring it back home. And then it's all that doesn't matter. Um, so there's this journey of sort of calming, seeing the, the real nature of your mind and who you are perhaps, uh, and then taming it slowly bringing it into your life, making it your focus. And then you come back to the village and you've integrated that. And then you're just a humble, helpful person. And is the meditation method or practice itself um, different? And, you know, can you maybe speak about a a couple of the different uh, methods of practice in the moment, what you're actually doing, um, you know, and maybe, where you think they would be helpful for people of, uh, of, of different levels and buy-in, like you were saying? Yeah, for sure. So um, to, to, to you start off with breath awareness, and I still do this now. Like um, there's many meditation methods and schools out there, and, and I like coming back to the breath just like the Buddha did when he was alive because you know, not everyone's going to want to visualize Ganesha. Not everyone's going to want to visualize Jesus or a candle or their foot. Uh, everyone's got a nose. Everyone breathes. May as well do that. And so from there, depending on your school, depending on your affinity, at least in the Zen tradition, we have these progressions uh, towards two ways, usually a huato or a koan, a deep question that sort of rattles your perception and thinking patterns which I'm not very familiar with. That's more Rinzai school. Uh, there's two schools of Zen generally, Rinzai and Soto, and a lot of them are blended nowadays when you see teachers. My history and my practice lineage is definitely more Soto, which is a little bit more just leave it. Dogen, a famous Zen monk, talks about this idea of shikantaza, which means to just sit. So you're sitting there and it's just sitting. There is no you trying to sit. There's no method. It's just just sitting. And basically it's just a no bullshit, cut the crap, be with what is as clearly as and completely as you can. And that is incredibly advanced and incredibly difficult. Uh, and I've had to stop doing it because I'm not a good enough practitioner really. Um, okay, that's probably not right. But So I just follow my breath and you count your breath if you're really distracted and then you end up following it and then perhaps it gets more subtle. Um, 
yeah and then and then you calm down enough perhaps where you can just be with what is and sort of exist and immerse yourself in that that and this is where like the word we we end up language ends up being unhelpful because language is very declarative splits something from other things and what we're getting to here is this sense of a unified state where we're seeing beyond our sense of self uh and and that's very hard, I've found, for the intellect to grasp. And if we intellectualize it too much, we end up building a really big wall at the end of this practice road that we that's just harder to knock down if you think about it too much. So I find thinking about the method perhaps or the progressions, sometimes, and they'll talk about this in the Zen tradition and in other traditions, people will just wake up, they'll look at the moon one night and it's really pretty and all of a sudden a neuron might just switch and fire with another neuron and all of a sudden they go, oh, and they have this great awakening perhaps. Um, uh, so, and you can have that just from counting your breath, from doing the most boring basic meditation method. So sometimes there's progressions and sometimes they're not helpful. Well, yeah. I'd like to also ask you, man, um, about your your practice at the moment uh you know uh, like are you meditating daily uh for how long um and morning or night that kind of thing yeah so at the moment i've got a new puppy and my girlfriend and i are like um pathetic new parents where all of our practice schedules have gone out the window uh but he's a beautiful little dog up up but ideally i get up every morning i make a coffee um and i'm getting better at it lately i, I you know get my dog to do a bit of training stuff getting poo and pee and then i can sit for a bit usually at least 20 minutes ideally half an hour 40 minutes if i've got a nice amount of time and then i'll get into some form of movement practice generally i split i try and keep some form of an ashtanga style vinyasa practice where um, it looks similar to Ashtanga, but some of the seated sequence, I just do different. Um, I don't follow the exact pose sequence because I've found some of the junctions to be not very well designed, but that's just for the Ashtanga nerds out there. Most movement people would be like, yeah, cool, whatever. Uh, and then once or twice a week, I'll deliberately go to the gym. I've had a handstand push-up project for a good six months that's getting there. Um, I want, I'd had a bit of a hand balancing practice before that. And then I just work on general strength and mobility. Um, and then around that, I, at the moment, I still, I'm a side projects, probably surfing as much as I can because it's, um, I'm two streets back from the beach and very lucky. And I, it, the high you get from that is awesome. Uh, the, the focus, the flow, the Zen, whatever is, is really cool. And I'm really terrible because I, started surfing when I was 21 <laughs> so I'm still very much a beginner but that's a rough outline so yoga probably four or five times a week gym once or twice surf as much as I can try and sit every day cool man um uh so in terms of the yoga um what are some of the things what's the good things about it and what's the bad things about it do you do you think like what things are yeah can we take and what things can we leave in your opinion Really good question. So yoga is, um, first of all, it's really hard to encapsulate yoga into one thing because it's like saying, um, it's like saying vegetables. Like you've got so many different types. You've got a rough understanding of how they're all grouped together, but um, depending on where you are in the world, it can mean different things. So 
with yoga, at least in the you know studio form that's slightly spiritual, that's mostly postures. The good side of it is that it's got an interoceptive focus that movement practitioners are starting to do as well, which I commend. Um, where you guide the person's awareness to perhaps be a little bit more internal so that they can pay attention to stuff that you would in meditation a little bit, um, but would perhaps wouldn't otherwise, where they're listening for their sensations and, and getting better at paying attention to that and perhaps at the end lying down and letting go. That lying down bit at the end is so awesome and the fact that movement practitioners are making that cool in strength and conditioning worlds and everywhere else is just like the best thing ever. Because like to downregulate from a difficult strength workout is so good because you you shake you your nervous system is a bit fried. Um, you've gone into that fight or flight state mildly, so you need to calm down. And I think that's what yoga offers is it teaches people in its various schools and forms skills to modulate their nervous system, whether it be through breath, posture, focused attention, or the blending of those three in different forms. It gives the person an ability to go oh, I'm up here at the moment. I'm kind of fizzing in this sympathetic state. I can put my legs up the wall, do some deep diaphragmatic breathing and like calm the fuck down. Um, or I can perhaps upregulate and, you know, do some Bastrika or Kapalabhati or um, Wim Hof style breathing uh, and upregulate a bit and, and just kind of play with the dials. It gives people uh, a little bit more control over their autonomic nervous system if taught and practiced well. But the really good teachers and the really good practitioners are rare. Because good pranayama, good breath control practice is, is difficult and tumultuous and it takes time and it's risky. You can, like I've tried myself so many times trying to do certain things or trying, trying to fix myself to certain ratios and things. So it's, um, yeah, it's very helpful. But the problems with it are what I just said. There's very few good teachers and the postural practice they think is enough for physical development and health, but it's not. I used to think it was, and some people can get away with it if they do it well, but they're rarer than the people who don't do it well. So extra strength work, more time in postures, uh, extra just loading. Sometimes body weight isn't enough. Sometimes you need, you know, a plate, <laughs> you know, loaded chin-ups, uh, something else um, to, to do it. Like I've got, for example, for everyone listening, I've got chronic, chronic, chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy, so pain on my sit bone. Uh, from folding forward too much with hamstrings that were too weak. And so the tendons have got this irritation. And unless I do weekly heavy work like Jefferson curls and, um, you know, little pike folds or, gosh, anything else, toaster bar, just nice loaded work, deadlifts I used to do, those hamstrings start to complain in yoga and I get pain um, just in walking and running. So there's that extra work that's needed because humans, we're not – you know, that's where the movement world comes in and goes, let's be a bit more generalist. Let's develop capacities outside of where we would, you know, let's juggle, let's jog, let's heavy lift. And I think that plurality, that generalist approach is really what yogis need to listen to and where we go wrong. What do you think that uh, specifically on the heavy lifting, like what do you think that actually gives your body? <laughs> it, uh, if when, when, you know, I'm not, I've done some strength and conditioning calls, but, a really good strength and conditioning coach would be able to answer this with more detail. But what I've noticed is that, and, and just clinically, it, it, it induces more adaptation. You know, five breaths in a, in a certain fold that is isometrically contracting the hamstrings in, in a certain position 
perhaps isn't enough and certain people adapt better to certain conditions that's why some people can get away with just doing yoga and nothing else like you know my yoga teacher he, he thinks I'm a bit kooky sometimes that I jump on the ring and sort of like go to a gym <laughs> um, because he's gotten away with it and like a lot of people can. But people like me and perhaps many others, it's like with food. Some people thrive off carnivore and good on them, but some people want to be vegan. Some people are in between. Um, so there's this individual response that, you know, perhaps you, Brad Schoensfield's work will be able to enlighten this process a bit more, but we just need perhaps that extra loading to get the response that we require to have the capacity that we want to do the things we want and you wouldn't get there. Like I've got a friend who's been a movement coach uh, and, and just fellow practitioner who lives in Brisbane now, but he's pretty introverted. He, Derek Skolnick, he is as stiff as a brick and he's very, very capable can one arm handstand can do it all. But he like without loaded progressive stretching, without chucking a plate on his back to do a pancake, he would never touch, you know, get a decent pancake from just stretching because he did a yoga training. He did all that, but it didn't work. So there's many of us out there like that. Right. And you just need that extra, extra stimulus to, to affect the nervous system, like above a certain threshold. Ding, ding. That's it. Interesting. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of um, focus on, I think still strength, even in the movement world, that's supposed to be generalist. There's still Mm -hmm. such a focus on strength um, yeah. that, that probably a hangover from like the, the traditional gym culture and also like, um, self perpetuated and societal, societally, uh, installed, um, you know, expectations of guys, which dominate the fitness culture and the movement culture, having to be strong and train. Like how much strength do you think, uh, we, we really need and, and do you think that maybe we train a little bit? too much and pursue that a little bit too much over maybe some just non-sexy small things and just, you know, some interesting skill work kind of stuff. Yeah. Big time. I think we definitely neglect fun skill work and, and, you know, other forms of movement development. Like I really like juggling. That's been really fun for me because I grew up being a very unco movement dumb kid despite trying every sport under the sun. I was the kid that sucked all the time. So for me as like a, you know, dude in his late 20s to thrive at certain things I find quite fun and the movement culture has given me that that self-efficacy but I think we the strength takes a big focus yeah definitely from a cultural lens uh it has those impacts but I feel like it's got a reasonably rightful place there because I've noticed so many crossover benefits from strength training like I go out and paddle now for my surfing and I've got so much gas in the tank where I didn't before from doing um, handstand push-ups and weighted chin-ups and some overhead barbell press work. I get out and paddle now and it feels like I've got like just, it's crazy. The difference in my pulling power is awesome. And that's like the classic strength and conditioning. Of course you're going to get that. So I feel like that we we um, we definitely still need it, but it needs to be seen in in its appropriate context in the broader system, like we've been speaking about. And I take um, my perspective from the barbell medicine guys in the states about this, where this is the one time where government, you know, big clinical recommendations have actually got it right. And I think doing strength training, they talk about it. I can't remember the exact data, but I'm sure you know this is an exercise scientist, like doing aerobic training at a certain intensity three you know three or so times a week and resistance training twice a week is like the bare minimum that keeps us 
at a decent capacity as humans to do other stuff. And if we cover that, we're going to be pretty good. So for me, you know, yoga, going to the gym to do one heavy strength workout a week, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. But, but yeah, the, the time for other skills, the time for other things is needed. Uh, so it's probably just a bit of both there. And I've also heard you talk about hyper uh, mobility. I think it was in your answering questions on Instagram this morning or yesterday or something. Yeah, yeah, just recently. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, you know, let's talk a little bit more about hypermobility. I actually see it a lot in the kids that I coach. Um, yeah. Some kids come in super floppy d- despite having like been exposed to lots of load and running maybe. Well, load in that dynamic sense, not in a controlled mm-hmm. sense. And some kids are, are maybe hypermobile due to lack of impact running jumping you know that kind of stuff um how do you how do you like conceptualize what hypermobility kind of is and how it affects things and how to maybe start um helping it out or changing it if we need to so this is a really big field where i don't know everything so i'll give a really generalist average physio or at least average you know modern as evidence bases i can be physio perspective there's largely genetic components to hypermobility, as I'm sure everyone inherently knows. And like you said, you touched on something there where there's like key developmental windows where people can perhaps be low tone or not exercise or stimulate the system at certain windows enough, and then you might get other effects. But, you know, pediatric physio is a world that I definitely have not a foot in. Um, but I think generally there's like there's conditions like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or... Um, Marfans and things like that where people can have different connective tissue disorders. We've got to be careful with them. Um, There's more strongly, clearly genetic cases. That's like what I said yesterday on Instagram. That's where if we give people the tools to really get the muscles strong around those end ranges so that the joint is perhaps less vulnerable. And that's where I think yoga sort of offered that, but not to the capacity that the culture could conceive of through now things like loaded progressive stretching and decent gymnastic strength training. So a mixture of all of those is really useful, but ultimately it comes down to what person wants to do. Like the lady yesterday who messaged me, she's been told not to do gymnastics, not to do yoga, not to do all this stuff. Whereas like her carefully and progressively doing that has actually helped her. So we've got to be a little bit more friendly and patient centered, but um, it's really for me where I'm at and with the knowledge I have at the moment, just about getting them resilient because we know this from things like ACLs when they rupture, not everyone, surprise, surprise, actually needs to get it repaired. Sometimes the ACLs can repair spontaneously, which is awesome. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes we can just train the hamstrings and quads and the neuromuscular system to be so good, so adaptive that you can play sport. You can, it takes a bit more time granted, but these muscles can be trained to do a better job and, and cover where the ligaments hell want you know acl injuries everyone's probably heard of them and maybe 10 years they might not have um Mm. what do you think has as far as i know there's been a a significant increase in the in the um in the prevalence of acl injuries especially in the last like maybe 10 15 years um is, is that correct and if it is you know why might that be happening and big question what also mechanisms kind of like uh, you know, um, feed into that, that, that then may lay out a path for us to avoid uh, ripping our ACL like 
every second person <laughs> seems to be doing. Yeah, sure. Um, I I am not a good ACL person. There's um, there's two people I really, or three actually. I'm just trying to remember the third guy's name, but hopefully when I get to him, I'll remember. First of all, Mick Hughes is a fellow James Cook Uni graduate, and he's a really, really good person to listen to on everything ACLs. He's pretty much the ACL physio in Australia. He's kind of got that name for himself. He's had some good podcasts about it. There's definitely an increase in it, whether that's reporting or not, I'm not sure. But it, I think the general consensus comes down to this physical preparedness and depending on the person and the age of where they have it, like I know a lot of middle-aged women, there's an extra spike again in their 40s or 50s. And I think that's a hormonal influence from what I know. But again, you know, not my area of specialty. Um, Eric... The science physio, I'm um, just trying to remember his name, Eric. Gosh, with my phone. I'll bring it up. He's got a really good podcast where he talks about this uh, a lot and he's like one of the best physios on earth to listen to around this. Um, the science PT, Eric. My God, this is annoying. Details. Eric Mira, M-E-I-R-A, uh, PT Inquest. They talk about this a lot and there's some really good resources there that I'll um, save people's time from listening to me waffle on. So go to those two people for ACL data, but definitely it comes out of physical preparedness and, um, and just getting people strong enough because people will go, right, I'm, oh, I've got really good quad strength. I can smash out all these squats or knee extensions, but they don't have that dynamic capacity or sport-specific capacity, and these guys talk about that a lot. So when they hit the field, they'll often have that inversion uh, or sorry, medial rotation flexion sprain and then ACL goes. Um, and it might not have had to have if they were prepared. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting, man. I'll definitely uh, check out those guys because the ACL, you know, that's something I def the ACL landscape and the and the injuries associated with that is definitely something I want to check out uh, a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, with so I was talking to someone the other day. And they were saying that an osteopath, they were saying Mm. that um, there's actually usually way too much emphasis on scapular depression and that Mm -hmm. we shouldn't actually focus on it so much. And that we should actually just focus on like retraction. Um, And, and he was saying that, you know, in the, in the, maybe the yoga or that kind of world or the movement kind of world or something that there's so much focus on scap depression um, and that it's like not really needed or it's too much. Like what's your opinion on that? So that comes back to another red herring, like the abdominal strength thing with the transverse abdominus. We got focused on shoulder pain being about this impingement with the humerus as it hits the acromion of the scapula, pinches some tissue and that's why you get pain. Turns out that was completely bogus. And again, it just comes down to overloading it and certain big genetic factors and, you know, bigger picture. But retracting and depressing the scapula, particularly depressing, was this idea of opening up that subacromial space and somehow, you know, making the shoulder less vulnerable. I've actually found, yeah, that osteo is definitely correct. Um, It's overemphasized, it's silly, and most of the time uncomfortable for me um, unless I'm, you know, about to do a chin up or something then it's useful so my perspective is get strong get capable in using your scapula in all different directions especially elevation and um i mean yeah just all of them really but elevation is one where people suck at and their upper traps are usually tight or sore because they're just not strong enough and we know that when muscles are weaker they tend to have a higher tonicity i was just listening to a, a researcher from brisbane this week alison grimaldi 
And she said that like that, you know, muscles will be hypertonic or tight because they're just too weak. And so the nervous system has to upregulate them to handle the strain. Whereas if muscles are stronger, like what we do through movement practice um, and perhaps a good yoga practice, they get, they don't have to be on as much because they've got more room to move. They've got more gas in the tank, if you will. Interesting, man. That's, um, it's a correlation that I kind of started to notice when coaching where you notice weak and tight hip flexors. And when I started to train my hip flexors, I could go into some kind of hip flexion stretch and just kind of sit into it way, way stronger instead of having that, that initial, like it happens in my adductors as well. If I, if I take them wide, cause I had osteitis pubis for like three years. Um, oh, God. yeah, that's kind of what we go. <laughs> why, why I'm like a movement coach now. Cause I was pretty much like, fuck this. What even is, <laughs> how do I even train this? You know? And it just turns out I just needed to get like stretch stable hips. Um, and that, that was all that I really need to do. But, um, yeah, that's, that's so interesting about, and, and it makes a lot of sense about the, the, the nervous system having to upregulate to be able to handle the strain that those muscles are on. Yeah. It's so important. And this is where, like when people come in like yourself with like pain, um, often this simple way of, uh, presenting a problem can be, um, a lot more hopeful, a lot more optimistic and, and just faster and easier. <laughs> And so, you know, kind of coming off that, what, what do you, do you see yourself as having kind of basics or, um, yeah, do you have basics that you'd like, you know, people to be hitting or w- would you not be willing to concede that and then just say that every single person and every single situation is um, individual? Like if you were to give, you know, would you want to give a, a movement program to every single person in the world being like, generally this may help because people do the same shit with their bodies pretty commonly. I actually reckon, yeah, I'm going to be, this might be controversial. I, I reckon, yeah, if everyone can, can hang for a good 30 seconds, uh, you don't need to do a chin up. Uh, as long as you can hang for 30 seconds, a minute would be awesome, but 30 seconds is a minimum. If you can do three rounds of 10 push-ups, full body weight, if you can do three rounds of 10 Bulgarian split squats and you can hold a side plank on each side for 30 seconds, they would be nice physical preparedness standards. And I'm sure there's many more. Um, you can do adductor planks and stuff like that. But for me, those ones, if people can match that, they're really in a good space uh, because sometimes what I do as a physio, people who come in with back pain and stuff, you just kind of like they're not really prepared for life. So I can just give them general stuff and their body will become more resilient. And often that's what happens. Um, of course, there's way more variables that a good physio can you know, assess and check for that's specific to the person. But yeah, I, I do feel there's certain standards that I'd like people to meet, but they definitely won't. And, you know, we've got a massive problem as the barbell medicine guys talk about with inactivity. And it becomes really important when people get older because we see that most of their problems come from physical inactivity, be it bone mineral density problems, falls, all this stuff that really kills people uh, can be changed. A friend of mine um, or a, an associate, you know, colleague, I guess, guy I've learned a lot from, Neil May, is the kettlebell physio on Instagram, and he's doing his PhD on this. He's getting old people to do hard-style kettlebell training and seeing some cool results. Um, he's yet to publish, but I would, I'd definitely get people to follow his Instagram. Awesome, man. Um, and what kind of are common, what's the most common like movement patterns and faults and like tendencies that you see people coming in with? 
Um, if I go really biomechanist from some of my like work I've learned from Robin, uh, a lot of tight anterior, tight and weak anterior chain um, and posterior chain particularly, glutes and hamstrings uh, need more work. Um, what else? Spinal erectors need more work. Abdominals, that's almost everything. But I, I notice a real posterior chain weakness um, and a lack of, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to summarize this all so I don't say pretty much every area of the body. Really, there's a loss of thoracic or transverse plane range of motion. People suck at that, particularly as soon as you get over 50, I'm seeing like issues with that. And that leads to, you know, stresses, extra stresses going down the spine, arguably enough, um, depending on where you look at the research that, that can, that can contribute to a pain picture then just your classic push-pull strength sucks and especially the hamstrings and posterior chain. People's hamstrings and glutes are so, and erector spine, spine muscles are so weak usually. Um, you know, my, my experience with my, my hip stability problems um, was, was really interesting because I went deep into the stability kind of landscape and I started off with some Bulgarian split squats and I was like, wow, these are really challenging. I think I might find these challenging and that my body's moving this way because my hips are kind of unstable. I don't really understand how to use them that well. And as I started getting deeper and deeper into it, like, you know, I kind of prefer um, like unilateral exercises, especially first for like almost anyone that I see, like if you're a great athlete, I, I like, I'd put my money on me just being able to throw a simple thing that I do. And they'd look at and be like, Oh yeah, I've got that. And just collapsing and just being really weak and unstable, let alone any general pop or anything moving to clinical as well. You know? Yeah. No, hundred percent, man. It's hilarious. They'll go, that looks all right. Or actually for you, you probably get more gung ho, like guys that are maybe a bit more keen. Whereas I have old ladies going, oh, I can't even possibly attempt that. And so I have to be like this, you know, real inspirational coach being like, you can do it. Like, yes, we can. But um, yeah, unilateral stuff is really effective. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. And, and, and what do you think about this hypothesis that um, like the, the stability of your hips and shoulders like directly limits your ability to be able to neuromuscularly recruit the bigger power producing muscles. And therefore you could work on big, strong movements, but maybe if you just focused on a crux and just got a bit more stable and aware in some of the, like in some of your shoulders and hips that you'd actually unlock potential that you didn't previously have access to when trying to produce power, run, jump fast. Mm. I can only go off really anecdotal evidence for this because I think when we get to the actual evidence, whatever evidence there is in senior clinicians, to me, everyone's tending to go load the dysfunction and it will fix itself. And there's very few physios that will say fix the dysfunction before you load it. Personally, I've found that definitely some isolated things can really open it up. Um, But sometimes the big drills open things up as well. So like, you know, improving my hip internal and external rotation, uh, improving my shoulder range of motion and then building strength on that has certainly been effective for me. But whether the chicken came before the egg, I, I want to say I know, but I don't. Yeah. So, so you just take them through, um, you know, for example, if you're looking at like a, a, you're trying to produce power 
in like a counter movement, like vertical jump, you just maybe, yeah. and you realize that they were really weak in that movement. You just kind of load that squat in a, in a progressive, you know, um, sensible manner and with proper coaching and intention, uh, as opposed to specific work that is that what you're yeah, saying? Exactly. That the physios, Yeah. If there's any like restrictions, generally, if there's a severe range of motion restriction and their pelvis isn't very free, that's why I like Bulgarians because they sort of strengthen one leg as you're kind of opening up the anterior chain of the other. Um, so things like that can be helpful. But yeah, really isolated like FRC style work, I would argue, isn't always necessary um, and very time inefficient sometimes. Mm, yeah, yeah, good point. Um so I want to ask a couple of questions before we wrap up, Oliver. Um, this one I've heard Tim Ferriss ask so many of his guests and I really like it. And it's if you had a billboard that could be theoretically seen by millions, if not billions of people, uh, and it had a short message on it, what might that message be? Ooh. I've got two. Um, one is my original one and then my second one is a copy of Edo. Uh, first is, and probably the biggest one that I like, where might I be wrong? Question mark. Because in this, I mean, we've seen at the moment, I mean, I don't know when this podcast comes out, but there's, there's a really polarised political environment at the moment and, and even in the movement and training worlds, everyone's so quick to get against each other. So if we get a bit more humility intellectually, it might be nice. And the second one copied from Edo is um, more movement of the body, more stillness of the mind. Hmm. Fresh. Dude, uh, <laughs> c- coming off that one, uh, would you rather, if you, if you had to choose, would you rather everyone meditated every day or everyone uh, like had a movement practice every day? Oh, that's tough. Um, I reckon they can be unified. We'll go Tai Chi style. So I, re- I would prefer movement <laughs> because healthier bodies lead to healthier people who tend to be happier generally um, and not everyone has the capacity or will to meditate. So I would lean towards movement um, and then trying to make that movement practice in a yoga kind of way a little bit more introspective. You know, can you get a bit of awareness in like spinal waves and things like that and maybe some, you know, zero form style fighting monkey standing stillness. So you can perhaps like, you know, get the sneak, the Trojan horse in. <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. Interesting. Um, and if you had, uh, uh, if you had another kind of question similar to the previous, if you had everyone in the world read three books, what would those be? Oh God, that's a good question. What are the hell most helpful books for me? Uh, Really popular ones, probably Sapiens is just great because to know where we've come from is really important. And my mum, when she was alive, used to say to me, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it um, and education is freedom. The second book would be somewhere in the kind of Buddhist philosophy realm, Stoic realm. So I've, I really like Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind as like a basic intro, but there's plenty of alternatives to that. And the third would probably be somewhere along like introducing some sceptical thinking and good scientific awareness. And that's a book I'm listening to at the moment called Calling Out Bullshit, um, Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. And that's by, let me just bring that up. Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind is by um, Suzuki Roshi and Calling Bullshit is by Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West. 
I'm about 60% through that. And it's just got so much stuff that I learned from uni and more that's really well constructed for the everyday person. Um, so those three. Awesome, man. And um, final question, what advice would you give yourself six years ago? Jeez, you're really good with these, man. Um, ooh, prioritize stillness and sitting more. The internal work will feed the external results that you're looking for, perhaps. and uh, yeah, really emphasize that. And, and with that, the patience and everything that you need will come um, because I've had to learn a lot more internal, just, I mean, classic stuff, being a decent person, more kind, more humble, more patient, uh, less angry, all that sort of stuff, um, perhaps later than I could have. But then again, there's people in their eighties who are still grumpy. I see them at work. So <laughs> not too bad. <laughs> Alrighty, man. Um, We'll probably wrap up here. So thank you so much for your time today. Um, uh, I feel like there's so much more to talk about still, but you know, there's always, there's always chance you're around too. And um, I'd love to uh, get in the water down with you on the Gold Coast one time, man, and uh, kook some waves. Um, definitely. definitely. I look forward to it. That'd be great. Yeah, man. But thanks so much for coming on and sharing your perspectives, man. I know people are going to get a lot from this. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Embody podcast. If you haven't already, follow me on Instagram at embody with three underscores after it. That's the letter M body with three underscores. My Instagram is where I share powerful resources and practice tips to help you deepen your physical and mental practices, as well as additional exclusive content from my podcast guests. Please reach out to me on Instagram if you have any questions or feedback. I'd love to hear from you.